What date will this come out? Uh, July, mid-July. 19th of July is The Lion King. No, really? It is. Will it be on the 19th of July? I think it'll be on the 19th of July. This will come out. I'll check. It's Lion King Day. (laughs) (laughs) Are you excited, Dan? I am a little. Yeah, I'm excited too. Uh, We're releasing this on the 18th of July. Ah, tomorrow Lion King Day. (laughs) Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Jacinta Delhaes and Dr. Daniel Kanema. Each episode, we'll be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at the world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies. Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make. Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies. So welcome to episode 12. (laughs) As you listen to this, we'll be on a safari. We'll be in the Kruger at a conference. We will be, yeah. Um, So seeing the real Lion King. You guys enjoy this. (laughs) We're on a game drive. Yeah, that's right. See ya. (laughs) No, I mean at a conference on a game drive. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be recording for you. Don't worry. We're going to try and record the sounds of lions roaring. At least that's what I'm hoping to hear. Do you think I'll hear that? The lions will be far away. Oh, I see. They will be loud. Okay. Maybe. Challenge accepted. What if there's a lion near the hotel and it's and it's roaring in the morning? Yes. Yeah, yep. then you'll be able to record that the lions won't come near the hotel though. Okay, but maybe they will. You might no. Yeah. Let's <laughs> let's be positive, sure. Why not? <laughs> Last time we were there, a leopard walked past every day at four thirty. Really? Yeah. On wow. its daily rounds. But he was quiet as a mouse. Amazing. I wanna see that. Mm. <laughs> Then you're going to have to skip some talks. I mean, <laughs> I, I won't skip anything. I'm a responsible researcher. <laughs> exactly. Um, what are we talking about today, Dan? Well, you tell me. You, we are continuing our tour of Australia. Well, Western Australia. So this is part two of a little series about my trip to Australia. So if you haven't heard part one, which is episode 11, you might want to take a listen. But otherwise, I can just give a quick recap of what we're talking about. So I went to Perth in Western Australia and visited the University of Western Australia, which is where I did my undergraduate degree. Um, Perth and Perth is uh, where I'm from. And I was there to attend a conference called FISC, which stands for the Pathfinder for H1 Surveys Coordination Committee. (laughs) Fisk with a PH. Yes. Okay. So what that means is it's a conference about neutral hydrogen gas, which is uh, an essential component of galaxies. It's what's used to form stars and big telescopes that are coming up like the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, and its pathfinders and precursors Meerkat in South Africa, ASCAP, uh, the Australian SKA Pathfinder in Western Australia. They are going to be excellent tools for studying neutral hydrogen gas in the distant universe. And this is an important component of galaxies, as I said, and it will really help us understand how galaxies form and evolve over time. This conference was hosted by UWA and also by ICRA, the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, which is where I did most of my PhD. Yeah. And who did you speak to while you were there? So today we're going to hear from a couple of people that I managed to speak to while I was there. Uh, The first is Dr. Jeff Wagg, who is a project scientist for the SKA, and he's based at the SKA headquarters in Manchester, UK. And he's going to tell us all about what the SKA is and what it's for and what the current status of it is. Awesome. Looking forward to it. And we'll also hear from Ahmed Elagali, 
He's a PhD student at ICRA UWA, and he's going to talk to us all about his the huge variety of topics that he works on, including superclusters of galaxies, neutral hydrogen gas in the outskirts of galaxies, ring galaxies, and simulations and observations and all sorts of things that he does. And I expect we'll hear some more bush sounds too. Um, I mean, we can, but I feel like we've covered that. We will hear some Australian bird sounds, though, <laughs> particularly the crows, <laughs> which don't sound like normal crows in the rest of the world. I'm not sure why. No, they really don't. It's very, very strange. It uh, is strange. And every phone call home when you're in Perth is um, littered with the crows in the background. Would you like to do an impression for us? No. Oh, come on, Danny. Uh, uh, <laughs> Actually, they really, really accurate. Out like that. Yeah, they do. <laughs> well, I mean, I've spent some time there, and you know, it it burns into your brain. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, we have hardy dogs here in South Africa. How do yeah. they sound? No. Yeah, come on. <laughs> <laughs> I can't actually do the hardy dog as well as I can do Try. the crow. <laughs> I feel a crow is just going to come up. But our, but our Australian listeners need to hear what the Hardy Dolls sound like. Well, maybe we can find a thing. Go on. They just do a really loud, ah, 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 ah. No, that's terrible. That's a bad one. <laughs> we have to download one somewhere. Yeah, we should probably stop talking about birds. Yeah, let's talk about astronomy. Yes. Okay. Let's hear from Jeff. Yeah, okay, let's hear from Jeff. Hello, we're here at the University of Western Australia in Perth at the 12th Fisk Workshop and we are in a break sitting outside. Uh, you might be able to hear some strange Australian birds in the background making weird sounds. That They are actually crows. Uh, there's actually some peacocks walking around as well. But I'm here talking to Dr. Jeff Wagg. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Jacinta. It's great to be here. Can you tell us who you are and what you do? Sure, yeah. So my name is Jeff Wagg. I've been um, working as a project scientist with the SK organization now for five years. Um, part of our role as SK project scientists uh, is to engage with the broader scientific community. And so part of my role is, is acting as a liaison for what's called the H1 Science Working Group, uh, one of our working groups within the SK project. Okay, and what's H1? So H1 uh, is effectively 21 centimeter hydrogen. So we, we know that hydrogen is the most abundant atom in the universe. And, and one of the, the main goals of building uh, a large radio telescope that works at low frequencies is that we can study this very faint 21 centimeter H1 emission and absorption in galaxies at the very large distances, much, much larger than our own Milky Way galaxy. So we're here at FISC um, talking all about H1 this week and uh, in particular what we're going to do, how we're going to study it with the Square Kilometre Array Telescope or the SKA. Uh, can you tell us more about what the SKA is? Absolutely. So uh, the SKA is an ambitious project um, consisting of two telescopes, one a low frequency array of dipole uh, antennas which we call SK1 Low. Uh, right here in Western Australia in fact it will be built here. Uh, and then operated over the next 50 years. Uh, on the other side of the globe in South Africa, um, SK-1 MIDS will combine the existing Meerkat infrastructure with roughly 130 new 15-meter diameter dishes, and SK-1 MID uh, will operate up to very high frequencies, much higher than those uh, of SK-1 low. Great. And what uh, what is the SKA for? So the SKA is effectively uh, going to allow us to study various phenomena in the universe from the formation of some of the first galaxies uh, to studying gravity uh, using objects uh, known as pulsars here in our own Milky Way galaxy. So where is the SKA and who runs it and who owns it? So I think um, 
it's fair to say that we as scientists all own the SK. In fact, even anyone, uh, a member of the public, uh, is effectively an owner of the SK because ultimately a big projects like the SK are funded uh, by the, the community, by the taxpayer, and we all benefit from the scientific achievements of these facilities. And what the SK will be, uh, again, are two telescopes, uh, one in, in Western Australia, another uh, in South Africa. And once completed, they will be effectively the largest radio astronomy observatory in the world. And the headquarters of the SK are actually in Manchester, near Manchester in the UK, aren't they? That's correct. So there are three host countries for the SK project, uh, but we now have 12 member countries uh, that belong to this organization. Um, the three host countries are South Africa, uh, Australia, and the UK. And it was decided to put the headquarters uh, of the SK project uh, very close to Manchester in a place called Jodrell Bank, uh, which is also the home of one of the original professors of radio astronomy, Sir Bernard Lovell. Mm-hmm, great. Um, but there's many other countries involved in the SKA as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about them? Absolutely. So there have been many countries involved in the project uh, since the early days. In fact, the idea for the SK goes back to the early 90s. Um, we have now, as I mentioned, 12 full member countries of the SK organization, uh, but we're hopeful that new countries will be joining. And I think it's important to point out that, um, you know, as uh, a large uh, science endeavor, uh, we don't only rely on the funding that mul having multiple countries provides, we also rely on the expertise that comes from having a large number of countries in this project. There's expertise in some countries that, that isn't as developed in other countries, and we want to take advantage of all that expertise uh, when designing and eventually operating uh, these two telescopes. So will all of these countries be contributing funding and resources towards the SKA? Absolutely. So the, the level of funding uh, varies from country to country. Um, but at the end of the day, that contribution that each country makes will determine the amount of um, uh, the return those countries get. So, for example, if a country puts in 10% of the funding, uh, then it's very likely that the astronomers from that country will get roughly 10% of the time in return. Uh, so that is the way this is balanced in terms of the, what we call just return. So there's something called an IGO about to be signed. What, what's that? So IGO stands for Intergovernmental Organization. Um, within big uh, science projects, uh, there are organizations that have existed uh, which have been put together specifically to run uh, specific facilities. For example, the European Southern Observatory, which is, uh, has, has its headquarters in, in Garching, uh, Germany, is responsible for running a number of facilities uh, in Chile, in the Southern Hemisphere. So, for example, ESA runs ALMA, uh, a big interferometer. Uh, that has been built at a 5,000-meter elevation site in the north of Chile, as well as the very large telescope also built at a nearby site uh, in Chile. Uh, now, the reason these... Um, there, well, there are a number of reasons for having an IGO um, in order to rein your facilities, but a few of those reasons include uh, having the stability and the commitment from the member countries in order to run those observatories or facilities over a long uh, time span. So, for example, in the case of the SKA, uh, we expect to run these observatories over roughly 50 years. Uh, the other thing that's very important is that having an IGO allows the organization to have freedom in terms of who we hire, who the organization hires to work uh, at uh, the member country or at the sites. Uh, so, for example, uh, we, might, we would not need to abide by the local or national uh, immigration rules in a country like the UK when we want to hire staff uh, from anywhere in the world uh, to work there. And that's very important because if we have a talent, talented individual who we want to hire, we don't want it to need or to require um, the constraints that are put on us by, by the local government. So that's, that's another reason that we want to have 
an IGO. And so what's happening right now is that uh, the countries who are planning to sign the, uh, the IGO treaty have all agreed on the um, uh, basically the high-level text of this treaty. And uh, the signing ceremony, which is basically the commitment toward that treaty, will take place uh, next month uh, in Rome. And so stay tuned for that. So we're very excited this is going to happen. Uh, at least five countries are planning to sign this treaty. And then it'll take about 12 to 18 months for that treaty to be ratified uh, by the local governments in order for the IGO to come into existence. Great. So that's a big step forward for the SKA, isn't it? It's a great step for us. And we're, we're, we're looking forward to having the certainty that the IGO will provide. Okay. So the SKA telescope isn't actually built yet. Um, such a large project involves many, many years of planning. Can you tell us what the current status is? Uh, very good question. So we are actually coming to the end of what's called the design phase uh, for SK-1. And what that means is that uh, the different groups who are designing the various aspects, the various elements of the telescopes, are now uh, having their design, what we call critical design reviews. And once those have been passed, then we can put forward the construction proposal uh, to the to the IGO council uh, for approval. Uh, once that construction has been approved, then we can start putting shovels in the ground in order to... Um, uh, in order to, to to start construction. Okay, so I've seen that there's uh, one uh, antenna already in South Africa. What's it doing there? Yeah, good question. So uh, we have one prototype antenna, which is um, now being built uh, at the crew site in South Africa. Uh, that has been fully funded by the Max Planck MPG Group, which is an institute in, in uh, Germany, but also involves uh, our colleagues in China, South Africa, uh, as well as uh, Italy. And so the goal of having a prototype uh, like this antenna is that we can start to verify the, the the expected performance of that antenna that make sure to make sure it does what we the astronomy community wanted to do in terms of its ability to to look where we want it to look uh, to have the efficiency what we call the um, surface efficiency of the dish uh, that we had expected in terms of the design uh, constraints. And so ultimately, before we go out and purchase 133 of these antennas, we want to make sure that the, the fundamental design of that antenna is sound. And so this, this antenna will be used to verify these, these, these constraints. So there's already 64 antenna um, out there in the Karoo, which make up the Meerkat telescope. How does the prototype differ to those? So uh, to first order, the biggest difference is in terms of the size of the antenna. So the antenna... Uh, for Meerkat is 13.5 meters in diameter. Uh, this new SK-1 mid antenna will be 15 meters in diameter. Okay. And what does that what does that do? Why why is it that bigger size? So that's a good question. So what happens is as you get um, as you build bigger and bigger dishes, the fields of what we call the field of view uh, that you're able to create gets smaller. Right. So the amount of sky you can see in at exactly. one time. Yeah, it's a great way to describe it. So the amount of sky you can uh, sample at any given time gets smaller and there are some trade-offs that one can make in terms of uh, the size of the dish and the amount it's going to cost versus the um, the basically the performance uh, that you expect to achieve with that dish so for example uh, the smaller the dish uh, the cheaper it is to build however that means you have to have more dishes to have the same collecting area Therefore, if you had to have more dishes, then the cost inevitably can go up. So there are trade-offs that one does um, in order to arrive at what's, what's, what's deemed to be the optimal design for a telescope. So what will be the future stages of development and construction in South Africa? Great. So once the construction is approved, um, I think one of the first aspects of the construction work will be to de deploy the infrastructure. So for example, digging road or digging trenches, uh, laying out roads, uh, putting in the power 
that we need uh, for that uh, telescope to be to be operated. And what kind of timelines do you think we're looking at? Uh, very good question. So uh, we are looking at starting construction in the next uh, within the next two years. Um, uh, but in the meantime, there's really a huge amount of effort uh, and great science that has been coming from the Meerkat array. And so uh, Meerkat has, has recently begun early science operations. And so even before SK-1 construction starts, we're going to see some great results and continue to see some great results uh, from Meerkat, which is very exciting. And this will maybe help inform the science plans for the SKA and maybe even the designs? Absolutely, yeah. So this is a great way to put it. The science uh, surveys that Meerkat is now doing uh, will inevitably help to guide uh, the kind of science projects that we want to we do with the SKA. And can you tell us a little bit more about those science projects that we want to do with the SKA? Sure, absolutely. So I mentioned before uh, the idea of studying the formation and evolution of some of the first galaxies. We also want to, um, as I mentioned, study gravity through objects known as pulsars. So we believe that the universe is full of what are called nanohertz gravitational waves. So supermassive black holes will merge in different parts of the universe. And that will give rise to these large gravitational waves. Uh, which you can detect by timing pulsars in different parts of the sky. So that's very exciting. Uh, we know that the, the very short wavelength uh, gravitational waves exist. These were detected um, uh, about a year and a half ago by LIGO. Um, but we don't, we have yet to detect the larger gravitational waves that we can study through pulsars. Now, uh, those are just two examples of some of the science we will be able to do through H1 observations. Uh, so the 21 centimeter line of atomic hydrogen uh, we can use that to study the gas content of galaxies. So think of the gas in galaxies as basically being the fuel uh, that will form, that will allow these galaxies to form stars. And we can also use the same H1 line emission uh, to study how massive galaxies are because of how quickly they're rotating. Uh, other examples of some of the science we would like to achieve with the SK, uh, we'd like to study how planets form. So for example, uh, we can study small dust grains around um, uh, nearby stars and what are called protoplanetary disks. Uh, we can study these at centimeter and millimeter wavelengths. So ALMA, uh, for those of, you, those of you who are interested, you can go online and look at some beautiful pictures that the ALMA array uh, has made uh, from Chile showing rings around nearby planets. And those rings may indicate uh, evidence for the formation of planets. But with the SK, what we can do is we can study the larger centimeter sized pebbles that basically represent the intermediate stages of planet formation. So there's there's a range of science cases, and the science case will evolve uh, as we go towards SK-1 construction. Uh, but we have a set of, of what we call high-level science objectives that we, we know uh, now will be um, uh, still relevant when the SK starts observing. It's really exciting stuff. And it's great, yep. The SK is going to be just a magnificent uh, instrument, isn't it? It'll be fantastic, absolutely, yep. Is it exciting to work as part of the SKA team? Yeah, it's exciting. Uh, one of the things I find most exciting um, is that we get to work uh, with people from all over the world, from different backgrounds, both technical backgrounds, uh, as well as um, you know, different cultures. Um, it's, it's very, um, the project can be challenging, but challenging is good. Uh, I think uh, it's one of the things that you know, keeps many people in the scientific community motivated, uh, is trying to, to to look for new problems and solve those problems, um, either through observation or theory. Uh, but it's been a very exciting project to work on. So do you have to travel around a lot as part of your job, and do you come to South Africa very often? Yes, yeah, so I do travel to South Africa regularly, and that uh, those trips uh, hold a special place, place in my heart. Um, you know, my father was born in South Africa in a town called Springbok, and uh, even though... Uh, 
when I was growing up, he never, we did not have a chance to travel there. I now have a chance to travel there quite regularly uh, as part of my job uh, working for the SKA. So that's great. And I always enjoy um, all of my trips there. I've been to Johannesburg, Cape Town, uh, Stellenbosch. And obviously in the future, uh, I would like to spend more time getting to know the rest of the country. Yeah, and maybe even uh, the rest of Africa, because part of the SKA eventually may be extended into not just South Africa, but other countries in Africa. Absolutely, yeah. So I've had a chance to spend some time uh, in other parts of Africa. I've spent some time in Zimbabwe, uh, and I would certainly love to see the rest of the continent. Can you tell us just a little bit more about um, uh, phase two of the SKA and how some of the SKA stations may be in some of these other African countries? So ultimately, uh, the, larger, the larger goal of the SKA is to build out some of the collecting areas, some of the, um, some of the array into other countries, uh, neighboring countries throughout Africa. Now, uh, that would take place in what we call SK phase two. Uh, so right now we're busy designing and ultimately we'll build SK Phase 1. Uh, but ultimately there is a goal to build out uh, the collecting area, the angular resolution, so the, the details that we'd be able to see in the objects we're looking at can be increased or that the level of detail that we see can be increased by having uh, antennas spread out throughout the continent at larger larger separations. Right, so the further apart you separate your antenna, the, the better the resolution you get, Correct, right? yep, right. absolutely. Cool. Yep. So if we can extend them out not only to the entire size of a country but to the size of a continent almost. Yes, absolutely. All, in fact, the, we even have radio telescopes in space providing us with angular resolution um, much greater than we'd be able to achieve by putting those antennas solely on the Earth. Great. Well, it's been uh, great to talk to you today, Jeff. Yeah, thanks. It's been great to be here. Thanks, Jacinda. Awesome. Thank you. Very exciting. And I see uh, just yesterday when we were recording, they lifted the first SKA dish in Carnarvon. Yeah, it's, uh, oh my gosh. a nice little video of it on uh, social media, um, lifting the first dish onto its pedestal. Oh, wow. I'll have to go and check that out. Yeah. Yeah. So it's... It's happening. Oh, so exciting. Wow. <laughs> Obviously, there's a lot of uh, tests to be done yeah. and things like that, but, you know, the, the construction is, has started. As Jeff said, it's a testbed telescope. Mm. But do you think it'll be incorporated into Meerkat and that, used for science? I think that that is the plan. Yeah. Right. So, oh, that'll be awesome. Yeah, no, it's a... Uh, so th so the, this dish was, unlike the Meerkat dishes, it was made in China, mm -hmm. uh, where all of the SKA dishes are going to be. Okay. So Jeff said the SKA dishes are going to be 15 meters. So I guess this one is it's, 15 meters yeah, diameter? Yeah, yeah. So okay. sli slightly bigger than the Meerkat ones, too. Yeah. Um, but very similar design and mm. I guess some slight upgrades. Yeah. Um, Since uh, the interview we did with Jeff, the IGO uh, treaty has now been signed mm. by several countries. I think you've got the list there, Dan, don't you? No, let me just bring it up. Yeah, so the, the IGO has been signed by 11 member countries now. Australia, Canada, China, India, Italy, the Netherlands, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, Sweden, the United Kingdom, and just the other day, Spain. Wonderful. So, so it's, it's a real thing now. Yeah, it's a real thing. And, you know, these these governments have put a lot of money and energy into this. And it's a really positive step for sort of science because it will happen now. And it just goes to show what a huge international project this is and how it really requires collaboration of countries all over the world to pull it off. And a lot of diplomacy and mm. politics, I'm sure. Yeah, a lot of hard work from a lot of different people, I yeah, think. Yeah. It's exciting. Very exciting. And uh, you also spoke to Ahmed. Uh, more about science, though. 
Yes, that's right. So Ahmed is a PhD student at the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, UWA, and uh, he, I guess, will be one of the generation, hopefully including ourselves, who will eventually be using the SKA for doing science. Uh, and so we're all doing science that relates to the, the work that SKA and its pathfinders do. So Ahmed works on uh, several different things. Um, as you'll hear, he's from Sudan and he's worked in South Africa and now in Australia. He's worked on superclusters, which are the really the biggest structures in the universe, clusters of clusters of galaxies, and um, what happens when they are kind of uh, colliding and, and how hard it is to find them. And he also is working on looking at the neutral hydrogen gas in galaxies on the outskirts of it. And you might remember from our previous episode with Brenda um, that it's really important to look at the faint hydrogen gas at the outskirts. It traces um, the interactions that the galaxies have. So when they collide together, it's mostly this gas at the outskirts of galaxies that can get disturbed and ripped off and gives us a clear sign that there is an interaction. So Ahmed uses uh, a few a few technical words that we can define. Maybe you can define them for our stand, there's morphology. Well, I guess that's just the shape, really, the kind of, yeah, the overall shape and structure of a, of a galaxy. Yeah, peculiar velocity. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a peculiar velocity is um, essentially just the, when we're looking at distant galaxies, they're all moving away from us. And the further we look away, the further away they're moving. So when we're looking at their actual motion relative to their immediate neighborhood, rather than their motion uh, relative to us, we call that peculiar velocity. Mm -hmm. um, metallicity? Uh, metallicity. So when stars form, evolve, die, uh, they form heavier elements within their cores. Uh, and when supernova go off or uh, other large events, then those elements get spread out throughout the galaxy and form part of the gas in that galaxy or intergalactic medium, intercluster medium. And we can measure how much of these heavy metals are in any cloud of gas, and that is known as metallicity. Yeah, and as astronomers, we call anything, any element that's not helium and hydrogen a metal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Chemists don't like that very much. <laughs> and finally, quenching. So when a galaxy uh, has run out of this star-forming gas, so it's generally neutral hydrogen, it could be enriched with a higher metallicity, that's the kind of building block for where stars can form from. Uh, you have to have this gas, it has to condense, you can form new stars. If you lose your gas, if it's stripped out of the galaxy or blown out of the galaxy or, or just used up, the galaxy can no longer form stars and then it is known as a quenched galaxy. Okay, great. I think that's all we need to, to go ahead and hear from Ahmed. Sure. I'm here at the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in Western Australia, and today I'm talking to Ahmed Elagali. Welcome, Ahmed. Um, hi, Jacinta. It's very nice to be here. Can you tell us who you are and where you're from? I am Ahmed Al-Abbas Mustafa Al-Agali, and I am from Sudan, from Northern Sudan. You did your undergraduate degree in Sudan, didn't you? Yes, I did um, an honours degree in physics and math, but majoring in mathematics, yes. And then what did you do after that? Um, I decided that uh, I want to do a degree in astrophysics. So I went to uh, Cape Town University in South Africa and I did an honours degree in astrophysics and then I did a master's degree there. And did you do any research as part of your master's? Yes, um, it was very exciting. I, um, I helped discover a supercluster called the Vila Supercluster and it's in the zone of avoidance or the zone of obscuration as they call it. 
So I've been doing a little bit of work on this uh, supercluster and I presented some of that work at a conference the last few days. And then you came up to me and said, oh, I actually named part of this supercluster the part that you're working on. That was exciting. Yeah, it was really very exciting to hear. So how did you um, help to discover this supercluster? What did you do? So I developed a pipeline that classified clusters. So basically um, what we have is the location and the velocity of galaxies around us. And then I developed a, a pipeline that helped classify or uh, locate these galaxies and their distances from each other um, to find if they are connected with each other and lie in the same position in the sky and the same velocity. And then based on that, you can say these three galaxies are part of a group and then um, the others are part of a cluster. And then you can actually just find out whether they belong to each other and they are they are in the same group or the same cluster. Uh, so we kind of knew these galaxies were there and then you managed to figure out that, yes, they are kind of gravitationally bound together into yeah. this big system. What is a supercluster? Um, a supercluster is a collection of clusters together. A cluster is thousands of small galaxies or galaxies in general, such as uh, the Milky Way, the galaxies that we live in. And these superclusters are some of the largest structures in the entire universe. Yes, um, they are. And what is uh, what we are actually trying to do back in the day when I was doing masters was to understand uh, the origin of the peculiar velocity of our local group or the, galax- the galaxy group that we belong to. So we are part of a group of galaxies. We call them the local group. And we find that um, this local group has a peculiar velocity and we um, were puzzled by by the reason for that and partly that is because of the inhomogeneity of the universe so in the universe galaxies are not distributed in a uniform matter or a uniform way rather they are congregated together or they form clusters and then superclusters, and that is that is part of the reason why really cool and then part of this cluster is special because it uh, it was hard to find because it's hidden behind the milky way yes when there are objects behind the milky way because the milky way has dust in it so it is very hard to detect the galaxies in optical wavelengths because the emission from these galaxies or the light coming from these galaxies will be obscured by uh, the dust of the milky way Wow, so you helped to to find one of the largest structures near to us. Yes. Wow, uh, that's really cool. Yeah, I was really very excited. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And uh, since then, you've moved on to do a PhD here in Western Australia, where I actually did my PhD at uh, ICRA, the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research. How are you enjoying your time here? Uh, I'm really having fun. I'm working on very different topics, which is really very exciting to me. And what are you working on now? I am interested in hydrogen gas in galaxies. So I study nearby galaxies and see how much atomic hydrogen they have and how this atomic hydrogen is affected by nearby interactions. So as I've said before, galaxies don't really stay isolated. Rather, they are they hang out, if you like, with each other. So uh, when uh, they are together, they interact either tidally or they collide together, which is really very interesting and cool to see. So I am interested in understanding how the atomic gas is affected by this interaction. And why is it important to find out if the hydrogen gas is is impacted by this interaction? Because the hydrogen gas is the building block of stars. So if you want to understand how galaxies formed and how they evolve, then you have to understand how they form stars. And to form stars, um, stars normally form from hydrogen. So you have hydrogen, this hydrogen become molecular gas, so uh, H2, and then you have clouds, and these clouds fall and form stars. 
So atomic hydrogen is the building block of galaxies. Right, so it's important to find out where it is and what it's doing. Yes, and that also reflects on our understanding of where we come from. So if you have a galaxy that's interacting and yes. it's, I don't know, maybe ripping off the gas from this galaxy somehow, what impact does that have on the galaxy? It can either increase the star formation or in some cases it can actually remove the gas from, from that galaxy and this galaxy quench or stop star forming. So it quenches or, yes, as you said, stops star forming. Yes. And then what happens in the galaxy after that, do you think? So we, we have um, different classifications for galaxies. So spiral galaxies are those that have a lot of hydrogen gas and they, they form stars vigorously. And elliptical galaxies, or as we call them, bread and dead, they don't have that much atomic gas in them and then they stop star forming. So if a galaxy is subjected to other interactions with, uh, with neighboring galaxies, lose its gas, it's gonna, uh, the star formation in this galaxy will change and then this galaxy will become an elliptical galaxy or a lenticular galaxy as we like to call them. There's another type of galaxy called a, a ring galaxy that you were talking to me about earlier. What is a ring galaxy? So a ring galaxy form when a drop-through interaction happens between um, a disky galaxy or a spiral galaxy and a dwarf galaxy. So, so what's a drop-through interaction? Um, a drop-through interaction is when another galaxy hit the bullseye of uh, another galaxy. So it just smashes right Smash through the center. Yes, <laughs> and that, that causes the gas in the victim galaxy, if you like, to propagate through its disk and then form uh, a ring of star formation. Wow, so you've got a hole in the middle yes. and then a ring around the outside. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. <laughs> yes, it is. It is really cool. And do you look at these ring galaxies? Do you use them for your work? Yes. So part of my work was to understand uh, the ramification of this collision interaction and what happens to the star formation and the gas in um, the ring hosts or the ring galaxy. And what we found was that these galaxies at the beginning after the interaction, they start to form stars vigorously. But after a while, the star formation drops significantly. And that is because the interaction with the companion galaxy mess up the distribution, the whole distribution of the gas in the galaxy. So the gas, after a while, is no longer dense enough to collapse and form stars. And how are you studying these kinds of galaxies? Are you using observations or are you using simulations? I use both. I use um, observational studies. Um, so I use the Australian Telescope Compact Array to map their hydrogen gas. And I also use uh, simulations of galaxies. So in these simulations, we try to understand, to simulate galaxies from the beginning of the universe. So from the time of the Big Bang up until now, and then try to understand how galaxies evolve in that. So what I was, uh, what I did was to look at uh, ring galaxies in um, a simulation called the Eagle Hydrodynamical Simulation, and I classified um, the galaxies that have this ring morphology and studied their um, interstellar gas medium. I studied how the gas is distributed in these galaxies and what properties this gas have in terms of pressure, in terms of temperature, and in terms of um, metallicity. And what, what, what I found was um, that these galaxies, after the collision, their gas density drops significantly with time. So the longer the ring is there, then the star formation of the galaxy drops because the density of the gas is just too low to form a collapse. So you've used simulations to find out that these these kinds of ring galaxies uh, have less, uh, are forming less stars. 
Is yes. that right? Yes. After a while. So at the beginning of the interaction, they start to form stars because uh, the collision um, generates pressure. I mean, obviously, when you have two, two things collide together, they... They smash together they smash and there's together. a big pressure wave. Yes. Yeah. But after a while, this pressure wave fades. And then you will have um, the galaxy dominated by low-density clouds of atomic gas that is unable to collapse for molecular gas and then collapse and form stars. Right. So to begin with, the pressure waves condense the gas and, and it means it promotes star formation. Yes. So more stars are, are born suddenly. Yes. And then after a while, then that fades away and no more stars are formed after yes. that. Roughly yeah. after 300 million years. Wow. Of that collision. Okay. <laughs> so long, long Quite time. Quite a while. Yes. Yeah. Great. And you said you also used observations. What kind of observations do you use? Um, I use hydrogen gas observations with Australian Telescope Compact Array here in, uh, in Sydney. And that's a radio telescope, that's isn't it? That's a radio telescope. Mm-hmm. And I also use observations from ASCAP, which is also a radio telescope here. Okay. And what did you do with those? I studied a galaxy group. Again, so I like galaxy groups. So a group uh, of galaxies, galaxies all hanging out together. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. So I studied how in that group galaxies interact with each other tidally and how the gas of these galaxies interact or is affected by the intergalactic medium. Intergalactic medium is, um, so when you have a group, you have the galaxies, but there is also intermediate gas between these groups so um, the gas between a galaxy and another galaxy we call intergalactic medium so there's kind of a fuzzy gas surrounding all of these galaxies in the group okay so i i I studied um, the ramification of the interaction between the galaxies and this fuzzy gas Mm -hmm. and what did you find um i found that for very fast galaxies um for galaxies that move very fast in the intergalactic medium, um, their morphology changes significantly. So their atomic gas um, is very asymmetric or loop-sided in some cases. Oh, right. So you've got some galaxies that are speeding through this fuzzy gas around yes. them. And as that's happening, this this interaction is is making the, the hydrogen gas within the galaxies all warp and do yes. strange things. Yes. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it is really very exciting. Yeah. yeah. And do you, what an impact do you think that has on the galaxy? Uh, as I said before, when so many group of galaxies um, clump together, they form a cluster. So the density of the gas um, between galaxies in, in the cluster is very, very high. This means that if the galaxy is shooting really fast in, in, in this cluster, it will interact um, vigorously with this gas and then in some cases might lo- lose a lot of its gas and that will cause quenching of star formation because there is no hydrogen gas left in that galaxy. So that will change the morphology of the galaxy. Great. So you've um, lived in uh, several countries now, Sudan, Cape Town, uh, Australia, that I know of. Um, how have you found the experience of, of doing astronomy and living in all of these different places? What do you like about them? What do you, what, what's different? Um, it's, the culture is very different. So the culture in Sudan is completely different than the culture in South Africa. But there is not that much difference between South Africa and uh, in Perth, and Perth in terms of um, weather. And in terms of, yeah, um, the culture is, yeah, similar. Um, so when you live in different countries, you learn a lot, not only about different people and different cultures, but you learn a lot about yourself as well and uh, how you as an individual is different 
I guess there's been some good times and there's been some challenges overall. Have you enjoyed the experience? Uh, yes, I did. I, I, I'm still enjoying it, actually. Yes. That's really great to hear. Okay. <laughs> good luck for the rest of your PhD. Thank you so much, Jacinta. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Okay. I thought it was really cool how Ahmed talked about ring galaxies. You essentially just punch a hole through a galaxy. With another galaxy. With another galaxy. And you just like end up with this bullseye kind of thing and of just a ring of glowing stars forming. Colliding galaxies, it's it's all the rage. Um, <laughs> you know, like the, we were talking about it with Nathan a few weeks ago, like the, all the different possible configurations of how two galaxies can collide. And one of them has happened somewhere in the universe. And that's why we can sort of see these sorts of things like a, a ring galaxy where it's had this interaction in the past. Yeah. And we talked about galaxy environments in episode six uh, with Eric Wilcotts. And I guess this is the, the result of yeah, yeah. living in a, in a busy neighborhood of galaxies. Yeah, yeah. Somebody punched a hole through you. <laughs> I thought it was just very cool um, how he is directly using simulations. I mean, obviously simulations are my background uh, and the the com comparison of observations to simulations directly uh, to try and better understand what's going on there. Yeah, the Eagle simulations are one of the cutting edge simulations these days and very cool that he's dabbling in both. Yeah. And you mentioned that you had also done some work on the, the supercluster he was uh, studying. Uh, what was that? And was that part of your PhD? No, that's slightly different, but it is related. So for my PhD, I was using a radio telescope in Australia called Parks. So Ahmed uh, mentioned two radio telescopes in Australia, the Australia Telescope Compact Array and uh, ASCAP, and they are both interferometers. So like the SKA, made up of several different antenna uh, dishes that will be that are connected together to form one big telescope. But Parks is uh, one of the last generation of big uh, single dish radio telescopes. So it's just one big dish. It's 64 meters in diameter and it's it's just enormous. And I got to spend many weeks of my life there during my PhD observing with parks. And what I was doing was trying to, um, I was mapping out a part of the sky, a particular part that I'd chosen. And I was just trying to collect as many photons at the 21 centimeter wavelength as possible from the sky. And within that data, we didn't really find any individual galaxies. So we didn't detect the hydrogen gas in any individual galaxies. But we knew where these galaxies were because we could see them in starlight, in optical light. So I went to the positions of those galaxies and I extracted out where I thought the signal should be. And then what I did is combined the signal of all of these different galaxies, even though you couldn't see the signal in any individual one. When you combine it together in a process called stacking, you can actually make a an average detection, a statistical detection of the hydrogen gas in these galaxies. And all of these galaxies were at a, a particular distance from us, which means they existed at a particular cosmic epoch, at a particular time in the history of the universe. And they're quite far away. So this was a billion years ago. And we're trying to figure out uh, how much hydrogen gas was in galaxies at that time in the universe. And this is really hard to pick up because the, the signal from the hydrogen gas is very, very faint. So that's why we have to use stacking to try and see how much there is. But with telescopes like SKA, we'll just be able to see it. It's going to be so sensitive and so powerful. We'll just be able to see it. 
um, we won't need to use stacking. And we'll be able to compare your sort of results, your your averages to what is actually out there. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so what I was doing with the supercluster Vila that Ahmed mentioned was trying to test these stacking techniques on a, on a cluster because we also think that the galaxies in a cluster should be H1 poor and that means they shouldn't have, uh, we think that they won't have as much hydrogen gas as galaxies that are not in a cluster because it has all been stripped out by something called ram pressure stripping. So as the galaxy is travelling through the intercluster medium, it kind of, like a wind almost, removes the gas from those galaxies. So I was trying stacking on that cluster to try and see whether or not we see that effect. And it's it actually was one of the first stacking results from the Meerkat telescope. We used uh, Meerkat data to do that. So that was pretty exciting. And you find what do you expect? You find that there'll be less H1 in a that denser environment? Yeah, so we've got some tentative results. We kind of see that there's a bit less uh, hydrogen gas in, in the cent- very centre of the cluster than there is um, on the outskirts. But we've still got a bit more work to do before that uh, research is publishable. And more observations with better telescopes. Yeah, which are all coming. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it for today. Um, a note that we will be running 13 episodes in our first season. So one more episode after this, and then we'll be taking a little break. Oh, uh, a bit sad. <laughs> well, a break to record and to yeah. uh, prepare some more material. We're going to come a, back with some pretty cool stuff for you. Yeah, and some new exciting news, I'm sure. Yeah. Thanks very much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next episode of The Cosmic Savannah. In the meantime, you can visit our website, thecosmicsavannah.com, where we'll have links related to today's episode. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, where we'll be posting extra pictures, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Uh, We're at Cosmic Savannah. That's Savannah spelled S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H. Special thanks today to our guests, Ahmed Elagali and Dr. Jeff Wagg. Thanks to Mark Olnut for music production, Yanis Brink for the astrophotography, Lana Serai for graphic design, Michal Wercek for photography and assistance, Sebastian Tulunski Obrochki for help in post production, and Tabisa Fikalepi for help with social media. We gratefully acknowledge support from the South African National Research Foundation and the South African Astronomical Observatory to keep the podcast running. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to tell a friend. We'll speak to you next time on the Cosmic Savannah. With upcoming telescopes such as Meerkat, uh, Western Australia's ASCAP, the Australian SKA Pathfinder. Meerkat. Isn't that what I said? You said Meerkat. I did not. You really did. Go back and listen to it. Fine. (laughs) Okay. I'll try that again. (laughs) ASCAP. What was I saying? You're talking about Pathfinders. And as with Meerkat, there is ASCAP. I was probably talking about precursors. But our, but our Australian listeners need to hear what the hardy dolls sound like. Um, yeah, I feel I, like I guess it's, they, every, sound, like, they every, sound like pterodactyls, like, ah! <laughs> yeah, maybe not quite so high-pitched, but certainly. Like they're, um, they're, they're, they're very uh, primitive and loud birds.